Usually we have a Bible study at the place we're going to have the baptism. Um, I decided to do something different and have the Bible study here, which is going to be much longer than a short one that I would give before a baptism. I've entitled it The Two Baptisms. And what we're going to... Um, Remember one of the speakers at the Prophecy Conference says, be careful when you're spiritualizing things from the Old Testament to the New Testament? I firmly agree. I think there's some people that take that out of context, and wrongly so. This is not the case. And I will show you at least three or four scriptures that directly tie into our Bible study this morning. Because what we have is an Old Testament picture of a New Testament teaching one of water baptism, and one of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And both are clearly taught to look back to, and that we're supposed to know it, and we'll read it in later, 1 Corinthians 10, as an example for us. So we're actually charged to have these scriptures because you're going to see things you never saw before. And like I often like to say, uh, the deeper you go, the deeper it gets, and the, the wonderful treasures that are in the scripture. Uh, what Paul read this morning in uh, Exodus chapter 14, I'm not going to reread because it's a lengthy portion of scripture, but let me su- summarize. Of course, um, the picture that we're going to be presenting is we have Joseph going to Egypt. And, you know, he interpreted the dreams and he was raised up to be the second most powerful man in the world under, under Pharaoh. But then it says, when Joseph died, he wanted his bones to be carried out of Egypt. And um, it says, there rose up a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. So Joseph was second in command in the world. And then there came another Pharaoh who did not like that. And for the next 400 years, the children of Israel were in bondage and they worked for the Egyptians. Um, I'm leading up to a little bit of the background and we know that as we consider the Old Testament picture, Egypt living in bondage is a type of the world before you're saved. Now just think about that for a second. They're in bondage. They're crying out to the Lord for a deliverer. The Lord raises up Moses. And, but it really is a picture. Egypt is a world. And before you're saved, you're in bondage. Can I get an amen on that one? Okay, but then you have to get saved. So how do you get saved? Well, when you look at chapter 12, go back to chapter 12, They're given instructions for the Passover. And the Passover was the last of the plagues that God brought upon Pharaoh. And um, it was to be commemorated on a yearly basis. Because of this, if you go to chapter 12, I won't read all of it. But it just says in verse 13, Passover, I'll go back to 11. 
He says, you shall eat it with a belt on your waist and sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, so you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Now the reason the Lord is saying this is gonna be done quick because verse 12, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and I will strike the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the house where you are. They were instructed to take a lamb. If we read verses one through 10, um, it talks about getting a lamb without blemish. It had to be spotless, one year old, first year, and uh, you will keep it till the 10th day of the first month. They actually brought the lamb in the house. And um, imagine bringing a little puppy dog into the house for four days and let the kids play with it. And the idea was that there should be an emotional attachment to it. And that would be accomplished by bringing the lamb into the house. But then uh, you were to kill the lamb at at twilight. Verse 7 says, and put some of the blood on the doorposts of the house where they ate it. All right, if you put blood on the lentil of a doorpost, it would be across here and here. And that actually forms a cross, and it's supposed to. We read in the New Testament that Christ is our Passover. And he says, when you do that, eat it, then you eat the Passover, you do it in haste because you're gonna be leaving quickly. And that is the, the whole idea of... Um, what we read this morning, were there now, what? The blood has been applied. And we read in verse 13, now the blood shall be a sign for you on the house where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's where the word Passover comes from. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Well, what's that a picture of? Applying the blood, when a person comes to Christ, um, they're applying the blood to their house and death passes over you. It's a picture. And so we went from 400 years of bondage in the world to being delivered by the blood of the lamb, literally. What does that make them? Well, type form, it makes them saved. So now they're saved. And now they're getting ready to, to run. And um, when you watch the movie, Charlton Heston <laughs> is leading them out and they get to the Red Sea. And when they get to the Red Sea, of, of, of course, you know, the pillar of fire stopped the Egyptians. And um, while that was happening, the Lord parted to see where Paul was reading for us earlier and they passed over on dry land. So, bondage, getting saved, what's the first thing that you do after you get saved? You get baptized. So the picture here that I'm going to, and it tells us that exactly in the New Testament, that's what it is, we'll get to it later. So what we're about to look to right now as an Old Testament uh, 
picture is um, um, a picture of salvation, the blood of the lamb, and going through uh, the Red Sea. Some people say, you crazy Christians, you actually believe that um, two million people, it said there was 600,000 some, but that's just men. That's not counting the women and children. We anticipate there was roughly around two million people that would have crossed the Red Sea and that the walls just stood up and they walked over on dry land. And you go, you crazy Christians, do you really believe that? And we go, yep. And um, then I throw this back at them if they're talking about that particular subject. Did you know there are, there are chariot wheels in the middle of the Red Sea? Put it on screen. I got pictures of it. There they are. Those, those be chariot wheels. And they've been there for a long time. And they're not along the shoreline, they're in the middle. And so the Lord, um, when he chooses, leaves, leaves uh, uh, evidence for us to actually see. Um, so basically this Old Testament picture is one and then we're coming back before we go. Whenever a person is saved, there's joy. So what we have at every baptism is before we go over there, we're gonna worship here for songs or so because um, that's what happens when a person gets saved. You're glad and you have a song in your heart. So if you look at chapter 15, what is the very first thing they do after they cross over, but they sing the song of Moses. And um, I mean the picture types here, the Old Testament picture types are spot on. And um, this is a song that they sang of deliverance of, um, uh, and then the Lord literally Baptism is a picture of also death to the world. And I don't want to leave that out. What did the Egyptian soldiers represent? The world. What happened to them? They died. So again, we have more to the picture. You're dying to your old life. You're dying to Egypt. You're dying to the world. And um, you're saved and you're baptized and and you... um, you're grateful, and when people are grateful, they say thank you, and they worship, and praise the Lord, amen? amen. And so here we have the Old Testament type. Turn, turn with me to First um, Corinthians chapter 10, uh, New Testament. First Corinthians 10, let me draw your attention to the first um, six verses. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud and passed through the sea. All were baptized, interesting word, into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food. I could get really sidetracked here. I'll get sidetracked just a little. Um, They complained, two million people. How do you feed two million people? Well, the Lord gave them manna from heaven. And um, 
they ate manna for 40 years. And they didn't like it. They complained about it all the time. Uh, man in the morning, man in the evening, man at supper time. I mean, man, they were sick of manna. And um, yet, that's what sustained them. Jesus said concerning the bread from heaven, he said, I am the bread from heaven. And they could not collect two days worth of manna. It had to be picked up daily or it would breed worms. So if you think you'd like to sleep in the next day and uh, pick up two days worth of manna, you could. But day one would work, but there'd be worms the next day. One exception, the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, they were to do no work. And so the Lord allowed them to pick two days and it did not breed worms. So it's a picture of this morning as we are, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the true manna that is sent down. And you just don't eat on Sunday morning. Good place for an amen. It's not gonna be good for tomorrow morning. And so we are charged to, um, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four, concerning our love for the Lord and the word, that we're to teach it to our children, we're to read it in the morning, at noon, and at evening. In other words, always being in the word. We don't have too much problems feeding the flesh, do we? (laughs) Three times a day. We like that. Um, But the picture there is a very, very adequate picture. Now I bring that up because now we're gonna um, give you a direct spiritualizing of a New Testament that proves that this is to be looked at as, um, well, let's just read it. It's in the next verse. We just read it about the same spiritual food being Jesus. And verse four, and they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now, I'm gonna develop this more a little bit later, but remember, 40 years, by the way, the last thing that we read here, it says, so I swore in my wrath they will not enter their rest. They're talking about um, um, the children of Israel going through the wilderness murmuring and complaining. Um, Their children entered in, but everyone that did not believe the spies that came back and said, uh, two, of, two of them said, we can do it. Let's just, let's just do it. We'll take it. But only they did not, they could have entered into the land in two weeks' time if they would have uh, followed the advice of, of the spies. Instead, the Lord says, no, you're going to wander. You're going to wander for 40 years until that generation passes off. And um, it was their um, children, are, are the ones that actually entered in. So here we're told, imagine watering <laughs> two million people on a daily basis. It tells us here that, and we'll get to this and develop it in our study this morning, that the rock, for they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. 
but with most of them, God was not well pleased. That's what we just read in the psalm. For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. This is for you and I today, verse six. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they lusted. Well, what did they lust after? Oh, you brought us out here to die. I remember those melons and those leeks and those peppers and oh man, they were good. And now all we got is this manna. And what can you do with manna? Except maybe make, as Keith Green would say, banana bread and manicotti and uh, macaroni and manna and no. <laughs> Trying to lighten it up a little bit. Okay, so Moses, according to Hebrews chapter 10, when he was of age, he spent his first 40 years in Egypt. He was trained in all the wisdom of Egypt. And then when he left, he spent the next 40 years um, um, feeding the flocks of Jethro. If you remember in the movie, and um, he was a shepherd until the Lord called him and gave him the commandments on Sinai. And then he had 40 years with the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness by faith. 40 in Egypt, 40 being a shepherd, and 40 wandering with the children of Israel. Moses died when he was 120 years old. Now, let's go back to the book of um, Exodus. And I want to draw your attention to chapter 17. And we'll read the first seven verses. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord and camped in Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people murmured against Moses and said, what is this that you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst. So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, what shall I do to this people that are almost ready to stone me? And the Lord said, go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with you um, and you will strike the river and go. Uh, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb and you shall strike the rock. And this is important that you catch this. You are to strike the rock and the water will come out of that so the people may drink. What did we read in 1 Corinthians 10? That rock was Christ. What is Moses doing? He's instructed to strike it. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place uh, Massa and Meribah because of the contention 
of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord saying, is the Lord with us or is he not? So do you have the picture? Everybody remembers the rod that um, was given to him and he took this rod and he struck the rock and it brought forth water. All right, now turn with me to the book of Numbers chapter 20. Next book over. Second book after Leviticus. Numbers 20. And let's pick it up in verse 7. And here, again, Verse two says that there was no water for the congregation, so they gathered together against Moses and Aaron. So here we go again. They're complaining, no water. So the Lord tells Moses in verse seven, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the rod, you and your brother, Aaron, gather the people together, and notice the word, it says, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield water. And thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give the drink to the congregation and their animals. Simple enough instruction? What do you do? Moses, just go talk to the rock. It'll bring forth water. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock, and he said to them, I'm gonna try to put it in the the way that I think he was speaking. I think he's ticked off. I think he's had it up to here with these guys. And what he does, he says, here now, you rebels. Must we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. What was he told to do? He was told to speak to the rock. But he struck it. Why? Because he was angry. And water came out, God being gracious and merciful, um, water, gave water to the people in the congregation and the animals drank. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. He said, because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore, you shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. Did you catch that? Moses, you're not gonna be the one that leads them into the promised land because of what you just did here. This was the waters of Meribah because the children of Israel contended with the Lord and he was hallowed among them. In other words, when Moses did this, the Lord says, Moses, come on over here. Basically took him to the woodshed and you think, isn't this a little heavy punishment for just this? I mean, um, 40 years of day in and day out putting up with this group, and now you're not going to let me enter into the promised land because I did that? Well, that's exactly what the scripture teaches. He was supposed to speak to the rock. Instead, he struck it. Um, Why is this this such an issue? It's an issue because if we're looking for an Old Testament picture of water baptism, 
Um, and we have an Old Testament picture of um, the Lord providing for them. Uh, we need to go to the book of Hebrews chapter 9 at this point, and I'll tie these together. Why such a big deal? Well, in the book of Hebrews, in chapter, let's see, chapter 9, let me work my way up to this. Hebrews chapter 9 tells us clearly in verses 22 through 28, and according to the law, almost all things are purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves uh, with better sacrifice than these. This verse here, for Christ has not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often. All right? This is important. Hebrews is telling us here that what took place on Calvary was a one-time event. Let's continue reading. It'll be even more clear. The high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have had to have suffered often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the age, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed to man to die once, but after this, the judgment. Now, the most important verse, 28. So Christ was offered once. I'm going to read it again. Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time apart for the sin of salvation. Where are you going with all this, Dwight? Well, if the rock being struck um, the first time uh, didn't get Moses in trouble, when he did it the second time, the Lord says, now I just want you to speak to the rock. I don't want you to strike it. I just want you to talk to it and it'll bring forth water. Why the heavy punishment? Because it completely annihilates the Old Testament picture. Now I'm gonna get off on something because in some denominations, what I'm just saying is considered to be anathema. Everybody know what, knows what the term anathema means? Eternally damned, okay? So, I'm reading from the Second Council of Trent and um, Roman Catholic theology. It's just a paragraph long. If anyone denies that in the sacrament of the most holy Eucharist are contained truly, really, and essentially the body and blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ and consequently uh, the whole the whole Christ, but saith that is that he is only therein as a sign. What we say and when we read here, do this in remembrance of me, that is not what the Eucharist is all about. 
He goes on to say, if anybody here says otherwise, that it's just a sign or something that we do in remembrance of, then it says, let him be anathema. So what I'm teaching you this morning, according to Roman Catholic theology, is anathema. And in their eyes, from their own words, from the Council of Trent, um, a lot of people attitude in this whole area is, is what's, what's the big deal? What's the difference? Well, the picture is pretty clear in the Old Testament. You strike it once. Hebrews tells us he never needs to be stricken again because of one time offering. So Moses blew it big time because he was angry and he struck it twice and by doing so, the Lord is saying, I got this whole thing laid out in church history, Moses, and Jesus is gonna die once and for one time only, and when you struck him the second time, when I told you to speak to him, now that we come to the Lord, doesn't it tell us to acknowledge the Lord in all our ways and he'll direct your path? Okay, what happens every Sunday morning in a Roman Catholic church? There's an, they, have it, they call it an altar, and um, they hold up the wafer, and that wafer, and they'll, they'll have a glass of, of wine there, and they say, literally, they're sacrificing the Lord again, and that's why it's essential that a Roman Catholic take the Eucharist, because of the sins that they committed during that week, well, then they need to be taken care of again. No. And because I'm teaching this this morning, I am considered by those who still hold to, even though the Pope doesn't, <laughs> um, Catholic theology, then I should be eternally damned by telling you no. Jesus said, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until I drink it afresh with you in the kingdom of heaven. Let me take it a step farther. Do you know what drinking blood is to a Jew? Do you know what they think about that? That is, that is way on top. That um, even, even when they were giving rules for the Gentiles who were getting saved, that um, uh, no, no circumcision for the Gentiles, none of that. Just keep themselves from um, blood that's in, in the animal. That is how important it is for a Jewish person. Okay, that is a picture of the first baptism. Coming out of the world, being delivered by the blood of the lamb, going through the Red Sea, a picture of baptism, singing songs, and beginning your walk of faith. Now I'm gonna switch gears and talk about the second baptism. To do that, we need to go to the book of Joshua chapter three. Joshua chapter three. While you're turning, I've always thought it interesting when we go to Israel. Um, I haven't been there in many years, but two or three times. We don't know where the body of Moses was buried, but I know where Mount Nebo is. So I've been on Mount Nebo, and it is high. It is at the northeast uh, part of the Dead Sea. And you got a clear view. Well, you don't have a clear view because there's a lot of evaporation coming up off the Dead Sea. But on a clear day, you could see all of the promised land. And uh, Moses was able to see it, 
but he was not able to enter into it. Now let's talk about the second baptism with uh, Joshua chapter three, the, and I'm gonna read the, uh, the whole chapter. Then Joshua arose early in the morning and they set out from the Acacia Grove and came to the Jordan. He and all the children of Israel and lodged there before they crossed over. And so it was after three days that the officers went through the camp and commanded the people saying, when you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the priests, the Levites bearing it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. Yet there shall be space between you about 2,000 cubics by measure. Do not come near it that you may know the way by which you must go for you have not passed this way before. And Joshua said to the people, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Then Joshua spoke to the priests saying, take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the the people. And the Lord said to Joshua, this day I will begin to magnify you in the sight of all of Israel that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. You shall command the priest to bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, when you have come to the edge of the water of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. So Joshua said to the children of Israel, come here, hear the word of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, by this you will know that the living God is among you, and he Uh, without fail, will drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Parasites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, the Termites, and the Jebusites. Oh, no, no, I missed one there. (laughs) Before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take for yourself 12 men from the 12 tribes of Israel, one man from every tribe. And it will come to pass, as soon as the sole of the feet of the priest who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of the earth shall rest in the the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan will be cut off, and the waters shall uh, come down from upstream, and they shall stand up as a heap. And so it was. When the people set out from their camp to cross over the Jordan with the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as those who bore the Ark came to the Jordan, and the feet of the priest who bore the Ark dipped the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows its banks during the whole time of the harvest. I've often wondered why they stuck that in there. Because... Just like with the Red Sea, some people say, well, there's a part of the Red Sea that's really shallow, and that's where they crossed over. And I think the Holy Spirit put this in here to let let us know that the waters of the Jordan are overflowed. It's, It's not dried up, and I think that's why it's being put in here. Uh, That the waters which came down from upstream stood still, rose up on a very high heap, far away as Adam, the city besides Zeratan, 
So the waters that went down into the Sea of Arabia, the Salt Sea, who were called the Dead Sea, failed and were cut off, and the people crossed over opposite Jericho. Then the priest who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm, notice, on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel crossed over on dry land until all the people had crossed completely over the Jordan. We have two places in scriptures where the children of Israel won the Red Sea, and here now we have them crossing over on dry land as they're entering into the promised land. This is the second time this has happened. The first time the Lord did it, and uh, there was no instructions except for the people just to follow Moses through. This is a little different because here, the second time, we find, I like to refer to it as a step of faith. Well, why do you want me to put my feet in the water? Because when you put your feet in the water, the waters are gonna separate. And in order to believe that and do that, you have to have faith. And so I, I see this as a step of faith. Salvation has already been accomplished. And now we find this is the Old Testament picture. And to show you that there are two baptisms, I would like you to turn with me to two different places. Let's go to Acts chapter eight. Acts chapter eight. And we're looking um, the story of Philip, who was a deacon, uh, went to Samaria, and a lot of people got saved. A lot of miracles were done. Let's look at verses eight through 19. So he's preaching the gospel. It tells us that unclean spirits came out. Uh, People who were paralyzed or lame, they were healed. And it was great joy, verse eight, in the city. But there was a certain man called Simon who's previously practiced sorcery in a city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is a great power of God. And they heeded him, because he had astonished them with his sorcery for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Gospel first, and then they were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as of yet he had fallen Upon none of them, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. The Bible clearly teaches two baptisms. We have Old Testament pictures of it. If you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 11, verses um, 
11 through 13. Many people today have been baptized. And like, let's just say the Baptists don't hold to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They have a different view. But they preach the gospel and I believe that they're saved. However, to be fruitful in your Christian ministry, it says every good and perfect gift comes from above. And I think it's absolutely necessary in whatever God has called you to do to have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Is it a salvation issue? I don't think so. Is it necessary to better equip you to minister to people? Absolutely. I can be talking to somebody. Sometimes it's on Sunday morning. Sometimes it's somewhere else that I'm just talking and maybe start witnessing. And I can tell you exactly when the Holy Spirit kicks in. And I know when I'm off duty and the Holy Spirit is on duty. And I know when it happens. I sense when it happens. So here, what happened? Philip preaches the gospel. Signs and wonders are done. A lot of people get saved, even the town sorcerer. And he's so impressed after Peter and John come up and lay hands on them that they received the Holy Spirit. Something happened at this point. Now, just as this happens, some of you are thinking, well, I don't know if I am baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now what do I do? That's why I had you turn to Luke 11, these three verses. It's a matter of your desire, okay? Let me put it to you that way. When it comes to the issue of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we read in verse 11, if a son asks for bread from a father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So if you're wondering, how do I get filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, how did you get saved? You invited the Lord into your heart. You ask. The Bible says you have not because you ask not. But what I like about the context that Jesus told this parable is around being hungry. And the question is, how hungry are you? And he said, if we're gonna give food to our sons and our daughters, and he actually calls us um, evil, and in comparison to God's holiness, we are. He said, well, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who what? What do you have to do? Just ask. My friends, it's that simple. You ask by faith, and you accept it by faith. And we have here um, this picture of how today a person, when we do the baptism this afternoon, we'll be baptizing people, but we'll also be praying for them, laying hands on them to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, Joshua led them into the promised land, not Moses. Why? I'm glad you asked that question this morning. Let's turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. John, chapter 1. Moses is a picture 
of the law. He received the commandments on Mount Sinai, not just 10, 613. So he is a picture of the law. And the law can never bring you into the promises of God. So we read in verse 14, let's go down just to read 17 and 18. It says, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. By the keeping of the law, which is what? Works. And we read as either works or grace, one or the other. So either you're saved by grace or you're saved by works. But when you're saved, we do do works, but it doesn't attribute to our salvation. The one finished act on the cross accomplished that. That's why Moses couldn't go in. It would wreck the picture. It would say if Moses here, we're told, represents the law, God could not allow Moses to enter or lead the people into the promises of God. The promised land is, is to us the things that God has promised to us. Only Joshua could do that. Joshua is another name for Jesus. Are you aware of that? And he was the one where it says grace and truth. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Joshua had to be the one. Moses could not be the one. So here we have... Um, I believe a clear teaching of this Old Testament picture of two baptisms. And I and, um, sort of to close things up and uh, verify it, let's close with Hebrews chapter six. And we're reading um, the ABCs of our faith. And this is what every Christian should have down pat. This is sound biblical doctrine. And there are six things that are mentioned here. Let's pick, we're only gonna read two verses. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. Uh, Well, what are the elementary principles or the ABCs? Well, here they are. Let us um, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works. And that's what happens when a person becomes a believer. Um, you no longer mess around, um, steal or lie or whatever everybody, um, as a, I'm talking about as a habit. You turn from those things, so you turn away from, and if you're turning away from, then you turn towards, by faith, towards God, and so you're saved. That's Passover. And then it says, and the doctrine of baptism. And notice that that is by itself, and then it says, and the laying on of hands. We have two clearly uh, parts of the basic Christian doctrine given to us here in Hebrews. The doctrine of baptism and the laying on of hands and then the resurrection of the dead, 
uh, and eternal judgment. This comprises um, the ABCs of our Christian faith. I will, did I already said we're going to close with that, didn't I? I lied. (laughs) Um, Three questions in closing. And uh, go to Matthew 28 for this one. And I'm, I'm going to put this in the form of a question. Why be baptized? Why be baptized? In Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus spoke to them and said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. Amen. So the question arises, why be baptized? And the answer is, because Jesus said so. It says, really, that simple. He said, go into all the world, preach the gospel, and then baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Number two, an example of the first time this is implemented. Here it's being instructed. Now let's look at the first time that it's going to be applied. And to do that, you need to turn to Acts chapter two. So that's just a couple pages away. And we call this Pentecost. This is when the Holy Spirit uh, fell. And Peter gets up and he preaches the gospel. And the more um, that he's under the influence of the the Holy Spirit, that it brings conviction to the people that are listening to it. Um, Verse 36 of chapter two, as he's saying that Jesus is the son of God and he rose from the dead and he sits now at the right hand of the Father. Verse 36, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. This is the first act of the Holy Spirit working in a person's life. You become convicted. You go, I shouldn't have done that. And I've been doing it my whole life and I shouldn't be doing that. And you have this cutting of the heart and you're convicted. And they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the brethren, now what do we do? You persuaded us that we're convicted that we're sinners. Now what do we do? Then Peter said to them, well, you need to repent, first of all. Turn away from it. And every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Matthew 28, the Great Commission, go into all the world. Here in Acts 2 is the first time the gospel is presented, and what does he tell them? Repent and be baptized. Now, what is the meaning, and this is the last verse I'll be sharing this morning, what is the doctrine of baptism? Go to Romans chapter 6, and we will 
conclude with this this morning. What shall we say then? Isn't that a good way to end the Bible study? (laughs) What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? There was this attitude in Rome that, hey, God is in the forgiving business, let's sin. And Paul says, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? It's a picture. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism. And that's what we're symbolically showing this this afternoon. You're gonna go down in the water and it's a picture of death. But then just as Jesus died, he resurrected. And so you're gonna come out of the water. Um, We hold you down for a little while. Some people we hold down longer than... There's a necessity, there's more washing that needs to be done. Therefore, we are buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. You come out saved and baptized. And here it is. Um, This is foolishness to the world. I mean, you're grown adults. What are you doing? Nice Sunday afternoon. I'm getting baptized. You're what? Weren't you baptized when you were six months old? Yeah. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches believe first, baptism second, without exception. There's no such thing as infant baptism. It is not biblical. I just offended all my Lutheran friends online right now. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we will also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified or buried with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Does it mean we stop sitting? Nope. But it does say that when we do sin, First John 1, 9, if you confess that sin, that he is faithful and just to forgive you of that sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, um, what a privilege it is to be involved with people who are being obedient to you and being baptized in, I wanna pray for them. And Lord, as we go our separate ways, we we are grateful, Lord, And you have put a song in our heart, even in difficult and troubled times, because you brought us through the water. You brought us out of the world. Um, The blood has been applied to our, uh, our houses, and death will pass over us. We will never die, but you've promised us eternal life. And we're so grateful, Lord. Help us never take it for granted. The fellowship of the saints, the sweetness of worship, and um, just the love of you and, and your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.